for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. We're in a series entitled Shaped, Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And kind of the aim of this series is to live a wholehearted allegiance through a whole life obedience. And this series started months ago, back in the fall, uh, as we began to walk through the book of Deuteronomy. And as we come near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we'll be in chapter 26 today, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, as we come near the end of it, what Moses begins to do is kind of begin preparations for final descent. You know, he's, he, he, you know the, 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 uh, uh, um, what's the guy that's in the cockpit of the airplane? The pilot, thank you. Totally lost track of my thinking there. The pilot calls over the loudspeaker and says, uh, um, whatever they're called that aren't in the front of the cockpit, please prepare for final descent. You know, and everybody has to start putting their tray tables up, uh, you know, that finally the guy that leaned his chair all the way back on top of you now has to move it back up and you can breathe again in the airplane. Well, that's kind of where we're at in the series. And so what we're doing is, is, is Moses has walked through the chapters 12 through 25 and he's talked to us about cultural issues of the day as we've looked at. He's talked to us about how to live out a faithful obedience to God through these issues. And today he's saying, okay, I've shared all of this with you. Now I'm going to address some final things before we complete this series of messages and enter into the promised land. And so that's where we find ourselves today. Now before we move to our topic, I want to introduce it in this way. I want to ask you a question. How do you connect the deep spiritual truths of the faith with the everyday practicality of your life. You ever think about that? How do you make spirituality practical? Is that not what we desire? People tell me, Pastor, just give me something practical to bite into. You know, just something I can do in my life. And sometimes, most of the time, people have a genuine desire to be able to live out their faith. Sometimes, they want to skip all the theology part. Just give me something to do to... Help me resolve this conscience that keeps condemning me or the guilt that I have. But how do you connect the spiritual with the tangible of life? You ever think about that? I mean, I just want to live this out. What if I told you there is a way to connect the practical and to practically live out the deep truths of the faith? I can see on some of your faces already, you're giving it the sniff test. Wait a minute, I think you've set us up. I've totally set you up, and I have an agenda this morning. I have an agenda every week. That's nothing different, right? But I want to help you with this. I, I want you to understand. You see, we often relegate spirituality to something that's only internal. That's what people mean when they say, I'm spiritual but not religious. I mean, they, they use religious in that negative connotation. And a lot of times, religion is negative when we try to substitute it for a relationship with Christ. But religion, in a very positive way, is also just the, the living out of our relationship. It's the practices that we impart into our lives so that our faith can be lived out. Now, religion's not the point of my sermon today, but I'm just trying to draw a contrast that many use as an excuse. They simply say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. But you see, spirituality that's internal only is really no good. It's no good. And what you'll find as well, it's not really spiritual. Spirituality, <clears throat> and when we relegate it to, to only be that which is intangible, you know, kind of like the kind of experiences of life, you know, we want to see an otherworldly kind of experience. When we relegate spirituality to that, we basically dismiss the potential of it for our life. It's meaningless in those times. Because if spirituality isn't practical, then, then it's, it's not any spirituality at all. 
You see, spirituality that is absent of practical expression is really nothing more than deception. You're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. All of life is connected and interrelated. You see, as Christians, we believe that God created us. And because He created us, there's a physical realm. There's an emotional aspect. There's a psychological aspect. I know some of you are really struggling with that one. Come on. Lighten up. If you know me, well, if you listen to me very often, you realize I struggle with that one. Just keeping a steady train of thought, like I'm doing right now, chasing a rabbit. How do we bring the deep spiritual truths of life to the practice of this life? That's what I want to look at today. And here's what I, uh, here's what I want you to walk away with today. That true spirituality always translates into practical living. There is no true spirituality that does not translate into practical living. Why? Because God created the whole being. The whole being. So how do we do this? How do we live out a faith that is rooted in the mind and in the heart, in deep truths of our eternal God, but making them very practical for our daily living? Now, one would offer this this answer, and, and that would be the answer of obedience. And that's right. Obedience is true. But I want to look at a more specific area of obedience today. And I want to talk to you today about one word that answers the question, how do we live out the deep truths of our faith in the practical everyday of life? And the answer to that question is this, stewardship. Stewardship. Seems simple. I don't want to make it oversimplistic. But I do want you to understand what stewardship is all about. Because here's what stewardship does. Stewardship elevates all of life to worship by expressing deep spiritual truths through tangible means. It doesn't reduce them, but it elevates all of life to worship. Have you heard that before? All of life is worship. Yes, and that sounds so great until you begin to try to work that out. How does that work out? It works out through stewardship. Because what it does is it expresses deep spiritual truths through tangible means. That's what we're going to look at today. I want you to see four aspects of stewardship that shape our lives as a life of worship. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 26. I'm going to begin reading in the first four verses and we'll see the first aspect. Here's what Moses says to them. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Moses turns his attention away from the specific laws and now he begins his final directives for this life in the new land. And he provides a first response for the people when they're to get settled. They're to bring some of the first of their harvest and to give it to the Lord. And friends, this brings us to the first aspect of stewardship that makes all of life worship. And it's simply this, that stewardship begins with a Godward orientation. Stewardship in your life begins with a Godward orientation. You see, the motivation to take first fruits of the harvest begins with this simple understanding that everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. He reminds them of this. And, 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 and he talks about what would happen when they get into the land. Now, if you look in verses 1 through 4, here's what you find. They've just gone into the land, and in that land, you see the closeness of what God has given and what, from what God has given, it produces as fruit in their life. Seven years ago, we moved into a new home. One of the first things I did in that new home was to plant a peach tree. I love peaches. These are juicy, great, scrumptious peaches. Do you know how many peaches I've enjoyed off that tree? Not one. Do you know how many peaches that tree has produced? Not one. 
Do you know what's about to happen to that tree? I'm about to put an axe to the trunk of it. I'm going to wrap a toe strap around the root of that tree, and I'm going to rip it out of the ground. I don't care how big the ruts are in my yard when I finish. I'm going to pull the root of that tree so heavily and hard out of the ground and replant it with something that will grow a peach. Why? Because I love peaches. And I am fed up with this tree. Now, when Moses says, you take the fruit of the ground, and you put it in a basket, and you bring it to the Lord, these were agricultural people. They understood what it meant to grow something and produce a crop and a fruit. And he said, God gave you that land. And the fruit of that land, you give back to God. What he's doing is he's connecting the reality of that fruit with the gift that God has given to them. Listen, anybody who has any level of understanding of agriculture knows this. The crop in the first year is not always the best one. You buy a tree like my peach tree, they tell you, you're not going to get fruit on it for at least two, maybe three years. But in that fourth year, you ought to have fruit. I don't know what my peach tree's been doing the first seven years of its life, but it has not given me a peach yet. So as they began to go into the land, and as they heard Moses tell them, here's what you will do in those years, these people understood producing a crop wasn't just like turning over a leaf. It took work. And the first year might not be as productive. It might, it might be a year of just preparing the soil so that the next one... But, but, but what did he say? You're going to produce fruit. You're going to have a crop. And from that, you're going to bring it to the Lord. You see, you can't honor God by taking what He gives to you and acting like it was always your own. And that's what he tells them. They understood that. And there's a close connection in these first verses that says the fruit that you take from the ground because you produced a crop in the first year wasn't because of how great of a farmer you are, but how good of a God he is. That's what he's saying to them. You see, stewardship begins with a Godward orientation. It's more than just an offering. For, for many gods in this world have been worshipped through the offering of different parts of life. And, and, and people will give and give and give until they're satisfied with God. As a matter of fact, uh, when I was in a, um, a country that's predominantly Muslim this last year, one of their citizens told me that they have a health epidemic because of the mainstay of their diet. And the mainstay of their diet is uh, um, um, a couscous. It's not like the couscous that we eat, but it's similar. It's a grain. But every grain of couscous they believe that's offered uh, with a neighbor or shared gains them merit with their God. And so every grain of couscous that they eat gives them a better chance of getting into heaven. You know how many couscous grains they eat? As many as they can. It is culturally traditional for there to be no couscous in the bowl when the meal is finished. These are massive bowls. Massive, massive bowls. And they, they struggle with high blood pressure, out-of-control cholesterol, and death rates from a diet that is driven too much by these kinds of foods. He says it's an epidemic in our country because we don't have the health care to take care of it. But people keep eating couscous. Why? Because they're making an offering, trying to figure out how much they've got to do to satisfy their God. And you know what happens? No amount of couscous makes that God happy because there is no God to be happy there. But when you come to the fruit of the land in Deuteronomy 26, it says you, you give the first portion to God because it is the first portion that represents the whole. And you bring that to Him. And this is where we begin to see that stewardship, friends, is more than just an offering. You see, others make offerings to say simply that we have a God. Christians do not make offerings, whether it's of money, whether it's of energy and serving or time, whatever the case may be uh, 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 in the way that we make this offering. Christians do not make an offering that simply says we have a God. Christians make an offering as stewards that says our God has us. 
a big difference. Stewardship in your life begins with a Godward orientation that all of your life is sourced from Him. All of it. And how important that is. Our stewardship begins with what we believe about God. If He is sovereign as we say that He is, and if He is the giver of every good and perfect gift that flows down from heaven as we believe that He is, if He has no limits on what He can source and no limits on what He can sustain, then why would our offering to Him represent Him in such a way that says He in some way is? begins with a Godward orientation. Stewardship sets aside the first portion to glorify God in worship because He is the source and the giver of all that is. Let me give you a very simple stewardship principle for all of life. And here it is. What you do with your all is represented by who you honor with your first portion. You see, giving an offering to God is not just about throwing something in a plate or you know, however we may do it in the myriad of ways to give today. But it's your first portion. Because it's the first portion that represents the whole. And there are many people who would gladly give all they have if they knew they could be assured of buying their own salvation. But there is no amount or cumulative amount that can promise that. But all God says is you just need to rightly represent the place that I hold in your life. And who I am with that offering. And that's what the first portion does. So what you do with your all is represented by who you honor with your first portion. And stewardship begins with a Godward orientation. That's what Moses tells them. You will come and you will worship at this place. If you look at verses 2 there, uh, you will see that he says this. You shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and he's teaching them what real worship looks like in the new land, what does it look like? Over and over and over again in that chapter, he tells his people, you will find the place that I have chosen to put my name there and there you will worship me. You see, what he's saying is the way that we steward our life in the tangibleness the things that we can touch, the things that are the practical every day of our life, when we bring them to the Lord, we bring them to Him in the way that He has commanded us so that we can rightly honor Him, not only with that, but with everything that they represent in our life. Stewardship begins with a Godward orientation. But look at the second aspect of stewardship. Continuing in verse 5, it says this, And you shall make a response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, he says. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Here's the second aspect of stewardship. Not only does it have a Godward orientation, but it is motivated by a faithful testimony of God's grace in your life. Stewardship is motivated by a faithful testimony of God's grace in your life. You say, wow, I thought it was more motivated by pastors leveraging us in preaching, right? By bringing the hard and the heavy when you talked about money, and that's how we gave. As a matter of fact, it's not motivated that way. There are even ways that that might get money out of you, but it does greater spiritual damage to you. That doesn't mean I'm going to preach less or less intensely on money. But see, stewardship is motivated by a faithful testimony of, of God's grace. So when the priest sets the offering down that he's brought, Here's what he says. He says the priest will set the offering before the altar. And then the words that the father 
of the family offers before the altar that describe why this offering was brought. Why did you bring your offering to the Lord? And here's the motivation that he teaches them to remember. Remember, Moses is teaching the Israelites that this is what they will do when they get into the land. And he says this, my father was a wandering Aramean. Do you know who that is? He's talking about Jacob. Talking about Jacob, Abraham's son, grandson, sorry. And what happened to Jacob? Remember his youngest son, Joseph, was sent into Egypt and, and rose up. And so when a famine struck where Jacob was living, he had to take his family. You remember how big his family was at that time? Seventy people, the scriptures record. Had to take him down into Egypt because that's the only place they could find food. And they had to find provision for their life. And when they got there, they didn't know it. But Joseph was the one that was sitting on Pharaoh's, uh, as a representative of Pharaoh's throne. And doling out the food and, and taking care of people. And Joseph recognized them before they recognized Joseph. And so through this exchange, Joseph reveals himself and they reconcile. And, and in that reconciliation, he brings the whole family into the fold. And, and Jacob and all of his family, about 70 people, the scripture says, enjoyed all of the blessings of royalty in Egypt. Why? Because Joseph was so well respected. But the scriptures go on to tell us that, that there rose up a Pharaoh after that one died. Irony, isn't it? Because Pharaohs were gods in those days. But they died too, because they weren't God. And another one rose up that did not know Joseph. And what happened then? Well, they began to oppress the Israelite people. What do you mean oppress them? Well, they subjected them to harsh labor. And they beat them. And they, they treated them in horrible ways. That's all the testimony. And Moses is saying, you remember the testimony. But what did he say? But God heard our cries. And he came with a mighty hand. And with signs and with wonders. He demonstrated his power. And when Pharaoh said no to letting God's people go, God said yes. And let me show you why. And he would per perform a sign and a wonder in front of him. And after ten of these, or after nine of these, God says, Enough. Here's the last one, and this one's the one that's going to do it. And God delivered the people. And, and though the people rebelled against God when he was speaking to them at the mount, and they had to spend 38, almost 40 years in the desert, and, and, and now they're to the place where they're about to cross in and take on God's promise, what Moses is teaching the people is that when you bring your offering, it should be motivated by a remembrance of the faithful testimony of God's salvation in your life. God saved you. Don't get over salvation. Don't let what God has done for you in some way miss you. Because your giving matters none if it's not motivated by a faithful testimony of what God has done in your life. You know how many people left Egypt? Remember how many went in? Seventy, roughly. Give or take, let's, give or take ten. That's fair, don't you think? That's more than 10%. You know how many people left? They estimate over 2 million people. What was the promise that God made to Abraham? I will make your family as numerous as the stars. Friends, friends. If that's not a fulfillment of promise, I don't know what is. And so God delivered his people. See, God can take care of more than 70 people. He took care of all two million of them. God can take care of more than two million people. He can take care of you and I. See, the faithful testimony of God's saving work motivates worship through the stewardship of all of life. This is so important for every person to understand that faithfulness and stewardship is always, always, always motivated by a faithful testimony of God's saving work. Because what do we do? We want to separate so many of these tangible practices from the spiritual depths of our understanding and the realities of those truths. And when we do that, that's how we easily relegate those rituals to just call them religion. That's just religion. And you know what? For so many, and even for some Christians, that is just religion. It doesn't mean anything. Why? Because God says it doesn't mean anything? No, because we've forgotten what God did say about how to practice our faith. 
and the realities of life. To say it another way, remembering God's mighty work through the gospel for us is the only sufficient motivation for faithful stewardship. You see, when you forsake or neglect your faithful testimony of God's saving work in your life, you will always doubt and even disbelieve that you have any need to honor Him with your life. When Paul called for an offering to help the church, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, it is the largest single body of literature in the Bible whereby we learn how we, as grace-motivated Christians, should give of our money. Do you know what Paul started? He said, let me tell you about the great capital campaign we're about to enter into. No, he didn't. He said this, let me tell you about how the grace of God has overflowed through the Christians at Macedonia. And he began to talk about the grace of God. And how that grace was sufficient for all of their needs. This is so powerful. When you forget the gospel, you strip your motivation for faithful stewardship. And friends, stewardship is much more than simply giving something of yours to God. The faithful testimony that motivates stewardship creates and produces rejoicing in the heart. And that's what we begin to see even in these uh, verses here. When, when we steward our lives as a response of worship to God. Our lives overflow with that which only God can give to us, joy. If you diminish diminish God's power to save in your mind and, 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 and in your heart, you will struggle to believe that stewardship matters at all. And you'll find little joy, even none at all, in giving. If you forget God's mighty power to save in your heart, you'll deny any need for stewardship in your life. You'll end up serving money and materialism as your master, and you'll grow angry at God for any hint at wanting your money. Why? Because money has mastered you at that point. Stewardship that produces overflowing joy in worship is motivated simply by a faithful testimony of God's mighty power to save. You don't have to hold on to your money because you know the one that's got it all. Let me ask you this question. What motivates stewardship for you? What motivates your serving God? And listen, when I say stewardship, I'm not just talking about cash. I'm talking about your treasure. I'm talking about the talent of your life. And I'm talking about the time of your life. All of it. It's a lot bigger than money. A lot bigger than money. But I know you're still holding on to your wallet. That's fine. I'm not going to ask for an offering at the end of this message. Not of money anyway. Has your giving to God ever caused you to grow angry at God? Maybe you felt like you were giving to God and then God didn't come through for you the way you thought He should. And, and so you got, you got angry at him. See, when this occurs, you can know one thing for sure, that your giving was not motivated by God's grace and the remembrance of that faithful testimony, but rather you were giving for some other reason, maybe to get from God. And let me tell you, you're in good company because we've all done that. We're all tempted regularly to do this. It even occurs, it even increases in our, in our life when we spend less and less devotional time with God. We We neglect spending time with God in His Word. We neglect spending time with God in prayer. We neglect spending time with God among His people in community and and fellowship and, and in serving. And when we begin to neglect these things, we are then led to where we will forsake the testimony of grace and what God is doing because we're not constantly reliving it as He redeems us and renews us day by day among His people with the gospel being at work about us. And so it's easy to forget, isn't it? And then we begin to wonder, why? Why? Let me ask you to do something for just a moment. Just take 30 seconds and stop. And start in this way. Remember when God saved you. Just recount the grace of God. And know this, your salvation didn't begin at that moment. Your salvation began long before it had anything to do with you. You know what? The salvation that you experienced didn't begin at the cross of Christ. If salvation had begun at the cross, all the people in the Old Testament would have been in a world of hurt. Salvation didn't begin at the cross. You know where salvation begins? In the heart of God. In the heart of God from all eternity past. God is a saving God. It was in His heart to love you and to save you. As long as He's been God, He's loved you. As long as he's been God, he's been committed to being a saving God. And the cross of Christ was the stewardship of his love for you. It was the salvation. It was the making real the love 
that He had already promised to us. So when you begin to recount your story of how God saved you, do not start with you. Start with God. And then realize, it didn't even come because you went looking for it. Even if you were in a desperate place searching for God when it found you. God found you, friends. God was pursuing you. You can have God all around you and still miss Him being in you. That's what the John Uh, The Gospel of John said in our reading this morning, did it not? He came to his own, but what did his own do with him? They didn't even know who he was. Had nothing to do with him. Let the story of your salvation become a spark, a catalyst for you to glory, to revel in a glory that is so big beyond just you, me, or us even. That you just let it soak in. And let it captivate you. And to see how much God loves you. Present tense. From all that past work he's already done. Well, there's a real reason that stewardship produces that overflowing joy. Look with me in verse 12. When you finish paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, Give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it, While I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven. And bless your people Israel. And the ground that you have given us as you swore to your fathers. A land flowing with milk and with honey. Here's the third aspect of stewardship that I want you to understand today. Stewardship readies us for God's blessing. Stewardship readies us for God's blessing. Now, if we wanted to unpack the minutia of these verses, and that would be a benefit to us, to be quite honest. We don't have the time to do that right now. But the economy of stewardship in that day was different than the economy of stewardship in our day. Okay, Let me just describe it in in, in that way for our purposes today. So in other words, the way that they gave was different than the way we give today. For instance, not many of you bring a basket of fruit to put in the offering plate each week. Actually, the first church that I pastored, which was not that long ago, one of the deacons would come in every Tuesday after getting his mail, sit down and have coffee with me, uninvited all, mind you. No, I got to where I really enjoyed it. Seriously. No, I really did. It's okay. And he would say, you know, pastor, or preacher, is actually what he called me. You know, preacher, we used to pay you guys with chickens and apples. I was like, I know, but I wouldn't have taken this job if that's what you had offered me this time, <laughs> right? And he was talking about it days gone by, you know, when the economy was different. That's, that's what he's talking about here. That's how he's describing it. But he's saying something more important to us as well that we shouldn't forget that still applies in the economy of our day today. That stewardship readies us for God's blessing. You see, when the offering is given and the testimony is shared, it's talked about the grace of God, then there is a confession that comes out of a faithful testimony and is a confession that can only flow from a cleansed conscience. Stewardship, in a very practical way, is a conscience cleaner. Not because it is the agent of cleansing, but because it is the activity that represents the one who has cleansed our conscience, Jesus Christ. It is by His blood that the condemnation and the guilt of sin is removed from us. And through stewardship, we respond to Him in worship by all of life becoming worship unto Him. And so stewardship begins with giving to God, but it also includes giving to others 
in God's name for his glory. That's why he says you give to the Levite, those who led the worship. And you give to the sojourner, the the stranger among you, if you will. The widow, the fatherless. And so he's saying this, listen, your giving is not just an obedience to God. It's a generosity that blesses all people. You see, what we're doing with the stewardship of our life is not just about us. It's all about God. And when God is honored, people are helped. That's what he's saying to us here. And in the management of this stewardship, he's telling us that we will stand before the throne of God as faithful faithful stewards, not as perfect participants. Did you hear that? Not as perfect participants, but as trusting recipients. That's why he says, he says, God, what does he say? He says, I've not eaten the sacred portion. I didn't take what was yours and use it for mine. I I didn't observe it in a way that dismissed you. I, I didn't eat from it when I was mourning. I didn't let myself just have a pity party and want you to solve that more than I wanted to bring honor and glory to you. That's what he's saying here. I brought my life before you as broken and and, and as sinful as it is, but I honored you with what I had, not because of me, but because you've cleared my conscience. You've given me a way to stand before you and even utter these words without thinking that you would strike me dead from the lie that they are without you. See, faithfulness and stewardship confesses obedience before God to honor Him and to help other people. But the confession of this worshiper that he's instructing here, it brings a clarity to your mind and to to your heart. How free to stand before God and say these words. Are you ready? I've obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. And I have done according to all that He has commanded me. You go, Pastor, I couldn't say that. Because I know how I've sinned. Listen, friends, they were people too, human like you and I. They knew how they had sinned too. The point is not the participant that perfectly performed, but rather the recipient that trusted in God. That's the difference between faithful stewardship that overflows with joy and begrudgingly giving that condemns even more. And this readies us. This readies us for God's blessing. You see, when we make this confession, it's not that declaration of personal perfection, but of, of God's complete provision. We see this a couple of different times in the New Testament, but a couple of times I want to point out is this. First of all, Jesus condemns the Pharisee because they tithed from every material possession they had, right? He says, you go into your spice rack. And you pull out a tenth of your spice and you sprinkle it on the altar to dare to tithe all of your material possessions. But the people that you walk by every day that you regularly find in need, that you know they're in need, you know they suffer because of their need, you have no inkling in your heart to even stop and look at them, let alone help them. Your spices mean nothing to me. Why? They weren't giving spices to God. They were given to themselves. They were leveraging God. They weren't loving God. They weren't being faithful stewards. They were being selfish propagators. And that's what Jesus says to them. See, friends, you cannot love God with money and possessions while neglecting to help others that you find in need. That's what he's saying here. You you cannot love yourself with money and materials, but only claim to love God or others with emotions, with feelings. Why? Because you've created a dual economy through which you say you express your love, but the only one that benefits from that economy is you. You get rich off of you and what you can get from others. You see, you must be consistent in the way that you show love. There is a fake and there is a true spirituality. One one common objection I often hear is this, but you know, uh, so often, Pastor, I just don't want to give if my heart's not right. Listen, friends, the very reason your heart's not right is because you don't give. 
Let me, let, me, let me offer another scripture to prove this to you. Because this is when you need to give most. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he is speaking again to the people, but speaking of the dead religion that so many of them are practicing. And he says this, that, that if you are there giving your offering and you remember a division that remains between you and a brother, what does he say? Leave your offering and go make it right with your brother. That's what he tells them to do. You see, what the offering did of faithful stewardship was serving to remind them to go and to make peace with their brother. Obviously, if they were making an offering and they knew that the faithfulness of their stewardship was honoring God through the faithfulness of that stewardship, God convicted them. And and the way Jesus says it, it wasn't even that they were the victim or the cause. Rather, he said, if a brother has something against you. So for all we know, in that parable, the one that is offering or making the offering is innocent. Except he knows that someone has something against him. And in the moment of offering, he remembers it. Jesus said, you leave your offering and you initiate the love of God to reconcile that relationship. And then you can come back with your brother. So what he is telling them is the value of of what true spirituality is about in living it out through stewardship. See, we may use hyper-spirituality to defer our responsibility, to defer our obedience and stewardship, but we practice spirituality all the time with a disconnected heart. We practice it all the time with a disconnected heart. When's the last time you prayed and you knew good and well, even while you were speaking those words, you did not mean it, you weren't in it? When's the last time you read the Scriptures? And about three verses in, if you're like me, you realize, I have no idea what those three verses just said. I don't know where I am, but I'm not here, you know? But you still need the Word. When was the last time you stood in church? Maybe this morning. And you sing words that were on that screen. And even while you're mouthing those words and uttering them, you realize, that's not true of me. But you sang them anyway. Please, friends, be very careful that you don't talk about worshiping with a disconnected heart. Why? Because we do it all the time. And the point is not we need to stop worshiping. The point is we need to see where our heart disconnects and where our faith is not real. And we need to bring Christ to that point. And we need to apply the gospel to our lives right there and to realize temptation is ruling us at that point. That that deception has taken hold in our mind. That another affection has replaced Christ at that place in our heart. So if we can't believe the words... Red flags should go off in our mind to go right there is your biggest problem with God right now. If you can't pray because your mind is reeling over something, instead of trying to just push it to the side, you need to bring it front and center and go, God, this right here is stopping me from connecting with you in prayer right now. And I need you to deal with it because, Spirit of God, I can't control it. It's ruling me. It's mastering me. If you can't read the Word of God with a clear conscience because your mind is worried about everything else that's going on, understand this, everything that you have going on in your life is ruling you and it's disconnecting you, it's creating separation with you from God. And instead of trying to push it to the side, you need to bring it front and center and ask the grace of God to wash it over you so you can stop worrying, so you can stop being anxious about the things that God's already got for you. You can just enjoy God. Enjoy God. So when you bring your offering, and that tinge in your heart says, man, you could use that money somewhere else. That light bill was bigger this month than it normally is. That gas bill just continues to go up. Jumped 12 cents overnight. I don't know if you noticed that or not. I did. Why? Because that's just the way I am. Worried about what the next tank of gas is going to cost me. I need a new pair of shoes. It'd be a lot easier to feed the family. I mean, what is it that every time you go to give to the Lord strikes you in your thoughts? Let me tell you, friends, that right there 
It's where your worry, your anxiety, your doubt and unbelief is creating problem for you with God. And God has not asked you to get over it, perfect it so he can deal with you. What God invites you to do is bring it before him. And go, God, I worry about money all the time. God, I worry about my kids all the stinking time. God, I worry about this church all the time. I worry about the things that are going on. And I worry about, I worry about this. And I'm anxious about that. And, and I'm overwhelmed by this. And it's not even my church. I know it, but it's not mine. It's yours. And my worry adds nothing to my life. And I'm sorry, friends, it doesn't add any value to yours. But see, what stewardship does for us is it, it takes the fake out of our spirituality. It takes the, 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 the ritualism that we so claim that we hate, that we practice so prevalently. It says, hey, you need to stop hating it and start confessing it. And realize that it's got more of you than you want to acknowledge. You see, he says this, leave your offering. What Jesus tells them to do, it shows God, it shows you, and it shows the world that you're serious about worshiping God. You're serious about your obedience, your holiness, and you're serious about your spirituality. You see, stewardship directs our eyes, directs our mind, our heart, and our hands so that we would love God and we would love others in ways that are consistent so that when we say we love God and we say we love other people, they're not something altogether different, but rather they are one in the same so that when God is loved people are loved and when people are helped God is loved and in every way worship and glory that is far beyond us but comes only down from heaven above is what exudes from our life that's what stewardship does friends stewardship aligns the daily living of your life with the eternal truths of God the confession before God of faithful stewardship helps us reconcile relationships with other people so that we can stand before God, cleansed by his blood, and call down his richest blessings. How many times have you stood before God and said, God, bless me? Felt a little guilty about it. God, bless me. Oh, gosh, should I feel that guilty? I shouldn't. God wants to bless me. And then we have to start arguing with ourselves about whether or not we can pray for God's blessing because I don't, you know, I mean, I know I don't deserve it, but bless me anyway. And, and, and God's like, would you just be quiet? Right? I mean, you, you're confusing me. No, God doesn't say that. God says, I want to bless you. As a matter of fact, God wants to bless you so much. Malachi 3 tells us this, that, that when, God, it, it, when God sends forth the challenge of the tithe, what does he tell him? He says, bring the tithe into the storehouse and see. See what? See. You know what see is, right? First-hand experience. Witness it for yourself. Personally experience it. See if I will not pour Open up the windows of heaven and pour down blessings upon you. God did not promise some trickle-down blessings. God did not promise to mist a little bit of blessing in your direction. And then it's gone. God did not promise to, to sprinkle you. He said what? Pour out blessings. See, the problem is this. We don't believe God's good, and we don't believe that his blessings will pour down upon us. So we give in accordance to what we believe God will bless us with. We expend our energy in accordance to what we think we can afford to get rid of for God and what he might return to us instead of just living all out and knowing that what he returns to us will be greater than what we expended for him. I don't know about you, friends, but I need that kind of promise from God. I need it desperately in my life. And I believe each of us, each of you do, as well. Let me give you the fourth aspect of stewardship. Verse 16 to 19. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart, with all your soul. Does that sound familiar? What, what is that? Where is he getting that? Somebody tell me the reference. Deuteronomy 6 4. The great Shema Israel. It is the heart of the gospel from the very beginning. And what is he telling them? You steward your life out of your relationship with God because of the gospel, not because of God's demands. All right, let's keep going. 
You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. As you promised? No. As who promised? God. Why? Because it's God who makes us holy and not us. Here's the fourth aspect of stewardship. Stewardship demonstrates a heartfelt worship. You see, God is honored in worship. He confirms his promise of purpose for his people. You will be my treasured possession. My treasured possession. He's glorified among the people and he brings his people into his glory. You see, what stewardship does is it joins the worshiper with God's divine glory and brings that worshiper into God's glory. Faithfulness strengthens our assurance and our experience in relating to God. You see, when you're living out not perfect performance, but what? As a trusting recipient of God's grace. When you're living that out, you not only make some declarations that are only true of you because of Jesus, but you're resting in the full assurance that God brings into your heart. You are my child. My treasured possession. Not somebody I like a little bit. Not somebody I'm willing to put up with. But you're my treasured possession. That's what faithful stewardship does for you. It it demonstrates a heartfelt worship wherein we receive the full eternal security and assurance of, of God's grace in our life. And so stewardship demonstrates this worship that rejoices in this assurance and revels in this glory where where we say, God, just surround my life with it and fill my heart with it and overflow. And what it does is it takes meaning as God fills us. It takes meaning to every aspect of our life. Have you ever heard someone say that all of life is worship? You've heard, well, you've heard it here before. But you've probably heard that. That's fairly common. Do you know how that is true biblically? Stewardship. Because when you live as a faithful steward, friends, your work is an act of worship. You bring honor and glory to God. Your recreation is worship. Your family, your home, your life, your church, your witness in the city. God uses you as a faithful steward to bring all of your life and to elevate it as worship unto Him. A a sacrifice that is made not on its own merits, but is received by God because of what He has done for you. And so stewardship, that's what it does for us. That's these four aspects of it. It, it. it elevates all of life as worship when it begins from the heart where God saves us. You know why we're bad at stewardship? There's just so much that can be said here. You know why we're bad at it? Because we're just bad. We're bad. Sin is bad. And we're bad. Your struggle with stewardship is not because God is not good enough. It's just because we're bad. And everything in you that is sinful says no way. But here's what I want to leave you with today. Everything about God is more glorious, more compelling, and more good, and more saving than all the bad of your life. That's the good news. That's the good news. Friends, I don't want you to walk away and do something today. Ask the worship team to go ahead and return. There will be plenty to do today as a result of God speaking to your life. But my point with this sermon is is not to call you to, uh, well, we're going to take up an offering today and give you an opportunity to repent. No. My, my point today is not just to get something out of you. But my point today is to put something so deeply in you that it can't not come out.
And here's that thing. Here's that person. If the God you worship, in whatever way you choose to worship Him, is not worthy of your all, then why worship Him at all? You thought about that? If God is not worthy of your all, why worship Him at all? Because the Christian life is not easy. The Christian life inherently brings challenges. It exposes you to to persecutions even, to trials and to struggles. That quite frankly, if you're not following Jesus, you don't have to worry about them. You, You don't have to worry about so many of the things that Christians concern themselves with if you don't want to follow Jesus. It'd just be easier, would it not? I mean, all the pleasures, if you're not following Jesus, all your pleasures will be temporary, but at least you know they're there. You know? And what sin promises you, it will not provide for you, but there will be a little, like, thanks for participating kind of pleasure that comes out of it. And when it's gone, you can just repeat the sin. You can go deeper, and you keep that cycle going, and, well, you get where I'm going with that. But if God is worthy, I guess I should ask this, is he? If he is, then why not? Have you considered that for your life? Again, I'm not talking about perfect performance. I'm talking about living as a trusting recipient of the greatest grace, goodness, mighty power, saving deeds that is sufficient for every area of your life. If God is worthy, answer that first for yourself. If you want to know my answer, I would say absolutely He is. Then why not lay it all down for Him? Just say, God, this is all I've got. Because what He does for us in return is to turn and go, good. And this is all I've got for you. And He gives us all. Friends, if you're here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've made those two considerations and and you've said, I know I need to repent of my sin. I need to turn from it. Stop trusting in myself and I need to start trusting in God. Right now, if you're you're waging and measuring that decision right now, let me tell you what's happening. Everything that is good about you is beckoning against, don't do this, don't do this. Everything you'll have to do that you've heard about religion or Christianity is also beckoning against you to say, man, it's not worth it. You know what he's going to tell you you have to do. You have to do this, you have to do that. You need to put those in front of God and say, God, here's all the pathetic reasons while I've rejected you. And I would just encourage you to say, God, would you show yourself more glorious than all these things in my life? He will. Christian, you claim that God has saved you. And rightfully so, if you put your faith in Jesus, He answers every prayer that people pray out of a desiring heart to save and place their faith in Him. But you know your life is not lived in accordance with that saving faith as God has led you. Why not? How about today? You bring into alignment the living of your life with the truths of the deep, spiritual, eternal truths of God. Stewardship, friends. Stewardship aligns the living of our life with the eternal truths of the very nature and character of God. Let me pray for us. Father, help us today. Help us to see you for who you are, to trust you, and to follow you in that. And God, where we see our unworthiness, may that just be further evidence in our own heart that joyfully sends us to you because you await to save us, 
to forgive us and to cleanse us. And God, as you work out the practical application of this for each person by your spirit, I pray that you would guard us against condemnation, that you would lead us into righteousness and holiness, and that you would fill us with your peace, with your presence, with your joy that overflows in glorifying worship to you. And would you begin that even now as we stand together and sing. Friends, let's stand together and respond to the Lord. If you need to come today, there will be an elder here to greet you.